Again, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is God's word. Thank you for reading that passage, John. As we look in Matthew, and we're getting near the end of it, what I'd like to do this morning is kind of look at the whole scope of Matthew and bring some loose threads together for you. Matthew has given us from chapter 26 through chapter 27 an account of the death of Jesus. So, As he does this, he, he pulls our, our attention to the suffering, to the loneliness, to the prosecution, uh, even to the abandonment by the Father. But there's much more going on spiritually, isn't there? This is, this is our salvation being purchased. And maybe you've experienced this within your life that you do something and, and you reflect and you don't even understand why you did it. I experience this mostly third person, as in I look at my kids and I wonder, what? Like, why? Why were you doing that? Even in counseling, one of the questions that, that I've been taught to ask counselees is, what were you hoping to accomplish by that? You know, so someone, someone expresses some anger or frustration with another person, and simply the question, so why were you angry? And especially with Christians, it starts out with a really good reason. And then you're like, really? Are you sure that's why? And you keep pressing the why and the why, and you usually get to the, to the root purpose. We look at the why of the cross of Christ. What was its purpose? What was it intended to accomplish? Matthew does not spend much time explicitly going, this is what was accomplished by the death of Jesus. But he's built a case, and he's, he has all of these threads that go all the way back to chapter 1 as he's establishing for us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if I could be so bold as to say, this is where our confidence rests. And if you don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. By definition, that would be saving faith. But I think what's more, con more common among churches is that people have a type of faith in a type of Savior that's different than the Bible describes. So frequently you'll hear in testimonies that people join a church is something like this. I prayed a prayer, I, I made a decision, I was baptized, I did something with my family at the age of nine, at the age of 12, whatever. It's not important about the age, but often there's this lack of real understanding about who Jesus is and what his death accomplished. It's much more like I just acknowledge that Jesus exists and now I'm saved. And we hear that testimony Usually when we hear it, it's something like this, and now I'm 27, and for the first time in my life, I'm living for Jesus. And, and we see that as a valid expression of saving faith, that for the first time they're living for Jesus, but we look back at that decision at 9 or 12 or whatever, and we think they didn't get it then. They merely had this 
understanding that's loose about who Jesus is, and they agreed loosely that he's a historical character, but there's not this recognition of all that Jesus has done. If you were to read the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament builds the theology of what happens in the Gospels. It's almost like the Gospels tell us what Jesus did, and the rest of the New Testament just teaches us its significance. So there's a lot of scripture this morning. That's my intro to tell you. Um, but we're going to look at the purpose of Jesus, and I'm going to try to try to build some threads, not only from Matthew, but link it to the rest of Scripture so you see the, the significance of Jesus' death. So really the theme this morning is the purpose of the cross. Number one, the first purpose of the cross, to satisfy heaven's requirement of righteousness. I want you to go back to the Garden of Eden in your mind, and as you, as you consider who Adam is, the day he's created, is he a righteous man? Now, if you know me, you know that's a trick question. The answer is no. The right word for Adam is innocent. He, he had done neither good nor bad. So he was neither rewardable nor judgeable. He was, maybe you could metaphorically call him a blank slate. Right? Nothing in him was commendable, was honorable, was good, but there was nothing bad in him. He was innocent of any evil either. So he's kind of this neutral character in the Garden of Eden. And the first act that, that brings about consequence or reward is his decision to rebel against his creator, which makes him not rewardable, but damnable. What's the penalty that Adam deserves? Right, Jesus, or the creator, says... When you eat this fruit, you will certainly die. So we come forward to Jesus Christ now. The Bible describes him as a second Adam. And I would suggest to you that when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he is not merely um, undoing Adam's wrong. He is doing much more. He is satisfying heaven's requirement that there be good on our account. That is, he's not merely a substitute who removes from you guilt. He's a substitute who adds to you a righteousness that's not yours. Theologians would call that an alien righteousness. Alien meaning it's strange to you. It's not yours. It's produced and done by another person and then given to you. It's not native. It's a transplanted righteousness placed on each believer. So Matthew helps us see that. You recall when Jesus was going to his baptism in Matthew 3, John, who is a sinner, and he's baptizing people as a signal of repentance from their sins. Jesus, the sinless one, comes to him, and John's like, whoa, 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 we've got this one backwards, right? Like, who should be baptized here, John the sinner or Jesus the innocent and righteous one? John should be baptized, right? Not Jesus. Yet Jesus says to him in, in Matthew 3.15 that he needs this to be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus doesn't need righteousness. We do. As Jesus is beginning his ministry, doing and obeying and living righteously, not for his sake, but for ours. So you move forward into Matthew 5, and Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, and he's all, all these blessings, and then he starts talking about the law, and he says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to do what with it? To fulfill it. Why did Jesus need to fulfill the law? He did not do it for his sake. When you come to the garden, you see with a little more texture, you should be there in your Bibles if you're following along with John. But I want to take you back to chapter 26, Jesus in the garden. In chapter 26, verse 39, he says, as he pleads to his father, not as I will, but what? But, but according to your will, but as your will is. In verse 42, again, he says, your will be done. If you were to flip forward to chapter 27, as he's on the cross and he's getting mocked, he says, I could appeal to my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels. That would be 72,000 angels, if you're doing your math. 
Now, Jesus' point is he's on the cross and he's dying not because he's a helpless victim. In fact, both the Father and Jesus could rescue him from this death. Why is Jesus on the cross dying? The prayer in the garden tells us because it's the Father's will and Jesus is doing what with the Father's will? He's obeying it. It's obedience. God says, go and die for the sinners I love. That's what John 3.16 says, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. doesn't explain it all there, but he sent his son to die on the cross, a miserable, tortured death, suffering the wrath of God for others who are guilty. Who sent him? For God, the Father's the point, loved the world. He sent Jesus to die. John, John 17, verse 4 says something like this. As Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says to his Father, I have glorified your name, having done the work you've given me. Which I think is a fantastic help for us to understand how to live life in a way that glorifies God. Do the work you put on your plate. Well, Jesus has, has done all of the work, but he hasn't died yet. I think a lot, of, a lot of the work Jesus is praying about there is the work of living a life of righteousness and obedience to the Father's will. And I think he's, he's speaking somewhat of the future as well, that he is, he is already in his mind as good as dead on the cross. I have done all that you've given me to do, and thereby have glorified your name. So who cares? Why all this talk about Jesus obeying the will of the Father, fulfilling righteousness, fulfilling the law? In Hebrews 5, Scripture tells us that Jesus had to obey. So in Hebrews chapter 5, if you look down into verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, probably the word learned there does not mean intellectually. As the Son of God, he knows all things. But you know what the Son of God had never experienced? Lack. Lack of sleep, lack of comfort, lack of health. He had a serious lack of health going on on the cross. Right? I mean, ultimately, so much so, so, much so he died. God is, God is not able to die. He is the eternally living God, and yet because as a human he learned obedience to the point of death, Jesus Christ's obedience cost him so much. He learned obedience through suffering because he was now able to see the cost of obedience firsthand, not merely as a byproduct of omniscience, but as an agent who suffered the cost of obedience. Sound familiar? That's us. That's the expectation. If we keep reading in Hebrews, so he, he learns obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation. Okay, so Jesus Christ, his life of righteousness and obedience was necessary to satisfy heaven's demands for you. You want to get into heaven, it's not just merely having your sins paid for, it's having right to the goodness and the reward of heaven. Heaven is a reward and God is just. You don't get rewards unless you deserve them. And what do you deserve without Jesus? Not heaven. But because Jesus has granted us a righteousness that's not ours, his righteousness earned and worked through a life of obedience to the Father, we now can be credited, according to 2 Corinthians, with the very righteousness of God. Or as Romans 5, 19 says, as by one man's act of, I think it's disobedience or trespass, many are made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Jesus Christ's righteousness was necessary for your salvation. So let me just encourage you with this thought. There is nothing you can do to get saved. Now, I'm, I'm punching that word do because we need to respond to the work of Christ by faith and repentance. But that's the instrument by which we cling to Christ 
You are not saved because of faith. You are saved because of Christ. His work does it all. His obedience is all the obedience you need to be saved. You do not need to spend the rest of your life working hard and sweating out your righteousness in order to earn merit before God. All of your merit, all of your credit has already been earned and paid in full by Jesus, the righteous one. All of it. So rest. Rest. God is not up in heaven keeping a tally and being like, oh, she's close, she's close. Oh, oh, erase that one. He's your righteousness by which God rewards you with heaven has already been worked by Jesus. In theology, we would call this his active righteousness or his active obedience. Heaven's requirements are totally satisfied by Jesus Christ of righteous. Rest in his goodness. Rest in his righteousness. But there is a negative side to Adam, right? So Adam didn't have righteousness, and then he sinned and had unrighteousness. So going back to the garden, what's the penalty of sin? When you eat this fruit, you will certainly die. This is not just physical death, although that is included in this. This is also a spiritual death. It's a separation from God, an apartness from God. And I think you see this physically demonstrated. Adam and Eve, the the moment they sin, what are they doing from each other and from God? Hiding. Not only are they hiding, God comes, meets with them, and then does what with them? He kicks them out of the garden, out of his place, his sanctuary. Because God dwells in light and only has fellowship, according to 1 John 1, with those who walk in light rather than darkness. So, so death comes. Ezekiel 18 would say something like this. The soul that sins, it will die. Or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, you guys are all with me, right? Like, when Adam sins, he not only loses out on the opportunity to have credit by being righteous, he, he secures himself and all of his people, which is us, into a condition of sinfulness with the consequence of being sinful, death. And this is where you and I are from birth onward. We deserve to die because of our unrighteousness. So, so then we go to the, the cross work of Christ. And probably no better phrase describes him receiving the penalty of sin than when he's dying on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he is receiving on himself And maybe we could say it in a couple different ways, but he's receiving on himself the wrath of God. Like, like God is not totally apart from him. God God is present as a retribution judging God. It's the same way in which sinners, I think, in hell experience the presence of God. God's presence is normally typified by sweetness and grace. I think in some ways the world doesn't even understand the grace they walk in every day when they live their lives. Psalm 16 would tell us that in God's presence is fullness of joy. This is the normal, typical expression of God's presence. So when Jesus Christ becomes an object of God's wrath, it's not like God was in in a temper tantrum. It is that God as judge is heaping onto Christ suffering. That's, that's equal to our sin. This is a righteous judgment that God is in the act of adjudicating while Jesus is on the cross, and Jesus cries out in agony and torment, I am forsaken by God. Galatians 3 would say it this way. He became a curse for us. Because the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in reference to the cross. 
1 Peter 2 would say it this way. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Isaiah would say he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died as though a sinner when he had never actually done any sin, but he was killed for our sins. 1 John 2.2, this is the idea of wrath. He is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Speaking of the total encompassing missionary reach of the gospel. Jesus Christ didn't just die for those who are connected to Israel, but for all people anywhere who call on his name. He's a propitiation. It means a satisfying of God's wrath. He absorbs God's anger at the injustice and evil of sin. In fact, Romans 2, Romans 3 today, but Romans 2 says we are storing up wrath for the day of judgment because of our unrighteous deeds or unrepentant hearts. Talking about unbelievers there, of course. Okay, so thinking what Jesus is, is doing on the cross then, as we think through the cross work of Christ and how Matthew's tying threads together, when he, when he quotes Christ as saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should be thinking he's paying penalty. Right? God's joy-giving presence has turned to afflicting him, pouring out his wrath on him. Jesus somewhat similarly describes this in the Lord's Supper as pouring out his blood. Right? This is my blood which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. What, what meal are they celebrating? The Passover. The Passover is where God's wrath against Egypt is passing over, hence the name Passover, all the houses where a lamb's blood had been poured into a bowl and used to, to paint the doorpost and the lentil of a house. And God, the death angel from God, would pass over that house, skip it. And so they celebrate the rescue from Egypt where God destroyed the firstborn in Egypt and passed over anyone who had a lamb's blood that was innocent and blameless covering its doorposts. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, my blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In chapter 27 and chapter 26 as well, Matthew records that Jesus did not answer. Isaiah says that's because he's like a lamb who is silent before shears. So Jesus the lamb was silent. Because he's the lamb of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 would say it this way. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So here's, here's, as we're thinking through the death of Jesus Christ, it provides for us a righteousness, not ours. It provides a penalty that heaven requires for all sinners. That's who we are. So Hebrews would say it this way. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. So who's our high priest? Jesus. And high priests offer sacrificial animals. What's your sacrifice? Jesus, right? So, so as we read this text, he says, Christ appears as our high priest of good things to come through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So who's the priest? Jesus. What's the bowl of blood he's carrying into the holy place to offer sacrifice for us? It's his own death. So by the sacrifice of himself, Jesus, our high priest, is offering for us his death to satisfy on the mercy seat God's wrath against sinners. For the blood of goats and bulls could not sprinkle the defiled person um, and sanctify them for purification of the flesh. But then Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's a little phrase in there I think is really interesting for me. Purify our conscience. It speaks not merely to the act before the throne of God where we are now pure, but the guilt that lies within. That there's a subjective element that the cross of Christ purchased for me, not just rescue before the judge, but rescue before my conscience as judge. You ever have a guilty conscience? Have you ever felt guilty when you shouldn't feel guilty? That's always hard to get out of. And sometimes that's us before God. We have false expectations about God's expectations. And we expect things different, probably not better, different than he expects from us. And we can be walking in a way that pleases him and still feel guilty about it. Because we either don't understand the scriptures correctly or our conscience is just overworked and needs to be quiet. But our conscience is polluted by sin. And God cleanses it through the grace of Christ's death, who as high priest offers himself. So on the cross, Jesus is dying. Do you remember the earthquake? And the curtain is torn down in the temple? This signifies so much, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. But as Jesus enters into the very presence of God, you know what also is not needed anymore? The temple, where his presence was placed so that a high priest could offer sacrifices and had to do it annually because of the new sins of the people and new sacrifices needed for the new sins. Jesus Christ offers, and now we have eternal redemption, eternal access through the perfect priesthood of Christ. So how long is your conscience cleansed? Forever. How long are you innocent before God? Forever. How long is Jesus going to stand between you and God to do priestly work to make sure God is never rejecting you again? Forever. The death of Christ secures for us righteousness not ours and removes guilt that is ours. So now we stand before God, unlike Adam, who was innocent, but had no righteousness, and then chose wickedness. So instead of having a positive uh, righteousness, he now has a negative righteousness, Jesus Christ reverses Adam's failure. Jesus Christ gives us a righteousness and takes away our guilt. This is what he does in his death. Maybe you could ask, what is, what is your response to this? Well, that last line that I read, excuse me, out of Hebrews says this. We have a purified conscience. It's purified from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works would be those types of works that would have been consistent with um, ancient Israel's failure to understand righteousness comes by faith. And so the Pharisees working to do stuff to get saved is dead works. We've been purified from that, and now what do we do? Nothing. We just don't ever obey. We're just lazy people, and we don't read our Bibles, and we don't have to do anything because we're saved, right? Do you notice what this passage says? We're purified from dead works, and now we serve the living God. This should energize us. Being freed from guilt and granted righteousness means that we are now secure, and we don't have to, we don't have, to have this nervous um, battle to do more and more and always wondering if we've, we've reached the bar and passed God's approval. Uh, maybe, maybe you're the exception, but most people feel like they do worse on important tests. Right? Like, like you master the material and then you go and take the final where it's totally pass or fail and you like restart the whole course if you fail and you do worse. Right? Like it's not as good a performance. This is not uncommon. Um, when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge, they started the work without a net. 
and the work was really slow, and people died. And then they built a net, and work went faster, and labor was more enjoyable. There is no risk for someone who has their full faith in Jesus Christ. And rather than make us not work for God, it should free us up for a different type of motivation. We don't work to get saved. We work because we love him. We are secure and safe. We have nothing that could jeopardize our salvation once we are in Christ and connected to him. So when Matthew says something like the curtain is torn down, it's declaring to us sacrifices for sins are no longer needed. I don't need to sweat out my salvation. I don't need to wonder. There is no anxiety that should fill the Christian soul if their faith is in Christ Jesus. Because he has done all the work. All of his righteousness is mine. And all of my debt is his. That's incredible. Matthew has more to say about the death of Christ. In fact, if you were to go to Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for sinner. So, so as Jesus Christ gives himself a ransom for sinners, I, I want to walk you through where we've been so far. If we go back to the garden, Adam starts as innocent and no righteousness to his account, but no sin to his account. By his sin of rebellion, he adds sin to his account. Jesus Christ reverses Adam's failure, right? But Adam experienced more than merely the judicial lack of reward and addition of guilt. He experiences the power of sin. And the price of sin is on his head. The wages of sin is death. Now sits on his head. And more than that, he experiences separation from God. And Jesus Christ reverses that experience, not just the judicial elements, but the experience of apartness from God and the experience of sin's domination. If you were to go back to that Galatians passage I referred to before in Galatians 3.13, it says, he has redeemed us. He's ransomed us is the point. Or in Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews 9.12, the same statement is made. By his own blood, he obtained eternal redemption. Maybe if you were to picture a slave market, ancient slave market in Israel or Rome, and that, that whole kind of Greco-Roman culture, almost half of the Roman Empire was slaves. So it's not like this is an uncommon metaphor for them. And unlike American slavery that is condemned in the scripture, it wasn't quite chattel where they're property the same way. But if you're kind of mixed metaphors here, the slavery idea, and you picture a slave on the slave block, he's owned by an evil master. And God, paying the price of his son's death, purchases the believer from the other master. Purchases them requires a cost, an expense made, right? So what's the price to rescue you from the penalty of your sin? What's the price point? It's death. This is why it says he redeemed us through the blood. Or he redeemed us through his death. But he didn't just redeem us from the cost of sin. He redeemed us from its power. I think this is helpful if you're, if you're working through personal sin struggles that are just hab habituated. Anyone want to confess? Whether it's personal anger, whether it's a, a, a chemical addiction, alcohol or drugs, whether it's maybe just the complaining spirit that you just cannot seem to overcome or anxiety that just owns your soul. And the more you worry about it, well, yeah, that's a problem, right? Like anxiety is a really hard one to get your hands on. I think we can start with the faith proposition that Jesus Christ has ransomed you from it. He's broken its power. Okay, so Romans 6 would do this. He, he has walked through Romans and he says, when you died with Christ and salvation, and he teaches us to look at baptism as a picture of that co-death with Christ, right? We are buried with him in baptism. Romans 6, 2, 3, and 4 show us. 
we move forward in, in verses 10 and 11, he says, you need to consider that you've died with Christ so that you are dead to sin too. Because Christ died in reference to sin, you should die towards sin. But then in verse 17, he says, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and now have become obedient from the heart to the standard. That's really compelling. You were once, past tense, slaves. Now you've become obedient. You're a different type of slave now. It's not like you're a free-range Christian. Right? Like, okay, maybe I should have gone turkey here. It's Thanksgiving time, which is trouble for you, turkeys. Right? And, and you get released from the turkey cage and you run free. No, that's not at all the picture. The picture is it's Thanksgiving time, turkey's coming, you're going to get your head lopped off because you're a sinner, you deserve to die, you're encaged and encased in sin's power, and Jesus, through his death for you, rescues you from death that sin deserves, ransoms you, pays the price, gets you out of that cage, and walks you to his Father, in whose house you are now a child, an inheritor, a blessed for all eternity. And the Father doesn't look at you and say, run free. He says, you are mine. Live for me. Let me read that again. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard. And he continued on the standard of teaching. Where does obedience come from? Where does good obedience come from? It's not external. It has to flow from our rescued turkey loving his master. Right? Like, like we do this as, a, as an act of devotion and commitment. It flows from our heart. God is no longer requiring you to be righteous to be saved because Jesus is righteous. When I say no longer, I don't mean that he ever did. I mean that the law requires us to be righteous, but Jesus is that righteousness. So, as you look at redemption, Peter would add to that, we are ransomed from our feudal ways, inherited from our fathers, with the precious blood of Christ. Okay, so again, sin's power has been broken. Raise your hand, well, don't really, but in your mind, raise your hand if you're just struggling to overcome your sin. And your response should be, God has rescued me from that cage. I do not have to sin that way again. The Holy Spirit has broken through the application of the death of Christ that power. Parents, you have teenagers that you will never think will understand or get it right. The hope is the gospel of Christ saving them from sinfulness. It is not better rules and better parenting. You will never spank your kid to heaven. Right? You will never strategically, structurally build a house that gets kids holy. Ever. <laughs> Maybe you could make them innocent, just inject them with like some sleeping pills. It's like, they won't do bad. They also won't do good and please God. They're not really holy. They're like a rock. Okay, so we've been ransomed from the price of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately purchased to God. Going back to my turkey illustration. Okay, this turkey isn't just a free-range turkey. God doesn't want turkeys roaming wild. He wants them in his house. I don't know why he would want a turkey. Have you wondered why God wants turkeys like you? This is what's incredible about his love. Isn't that what, what Romans 5 tells us? God loves us while we were still sinners, is meant to anchor our security to something better than us, better than performance. You will never lose your salvation because the anchor of your hope is not you, because you're a turkey. 
And as meat or pets, they're not good. Purchased by God for God. 2751, when the curtain is torn, it's not just torn to show there's no priestly work. It's torn to show access has been opened up between sinners made holy and a holy God. It's one of the incredible statements in Matthew. The city shakes. There seems to be some type of resurrection, perhaps along a parallel lines of like a Lazarus type of resurrection. It, it metaphorically and spiritually and literally rocks the city. Because the Son of God has paid for sins through the incarnation and his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ fully atones for all the sins of all the elect of all the ages. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says this, You were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless in his presence. Now think about that for a moment. You were, alienated means foreign to God. Hostile means you're an enemy to him. He has now brought you into his house so that not only you're in his house, you're holy and blameless in his presence. Revelation 14.4 speaks of believers as redeemed from mankind as firstfruits of God and the Lamb. That is, he has purchased to himself sinners. And here's the incredible truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, excuse me, the death of Jesus Christ, is he ransomed us, like he says in chapter 20, verse 28, so that sin's power is broken. The penalty price has been paid, and you are now in the presence of God, holy. And he did this by being forsaken. Like, I don't think we should miss that. He is an object of wrath apart from his Father so that you could be an object of love with his Father. That's what happens on the cross. Is Jesus Christ pays the price of your disobedience. He gives you his obedience so you can get rewarded for it. And he purchases away all of the detriments that you deserve for your sin and grants you all of the benefits of his righteous human life so that you can be reconciled to God forever. All of this, Matthew is tied together with uh, quotes of Jesus Christ, claims about what he is doing. Even his name in chapter 1, his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. This is the whole structure of Matthew to lead us to the place where we look at Jesus not merely as the King of Israel, but as our Savior and king. It is no surprise then when he ends, he says, all authority is given to me. He's king. Therefore, go and make disciples because he's savior. So what should you do? Well, if God has reconciled you from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and into fellowship with him, then you should please him with all that you do. You ever notice how you talk about people differently when they're present? Sometimes your praise is tempered. Hopefully your criticism isn't tempered. It's just not there when they're not there. But it's really not something we, we don't temp, we're not tempted to gossip when someone's present with us. Right, so, like, if I'm going to tell you a story that, generally speaking, would make one of my children embarrassed, I will not tell that story when they're present because I care about them. Like, their present shapes. And maybe I'd be more, a little, little more inclined to tell you a story about how good they're doing in school or sports or whatever pursuits are, are in front of them. If you were to criticize the sermon this morning, and probably rightly so for many areas, you probably wouldn't do that with me present, unless you're part of the class that does that. <laughs> I'm purpose trying to think through preaching. We change our behavior when someone's present, don't we? We talk about our spouse 
We, we, we talk about events. I mean, I'm not a fan of our current president, but I'm guessing if he were here and talking to me, I would be really kind to him. I'd probably get a signature. I'd probably get a picture with him. You know, like, like behavior sh- is shaped by, by the reality of who's with us, isn't it? I mean, generally speaking, men are not struggling with looking at dirty images when their wife is sitting next to them. So, so here's the commission, I think, from the theology of this text. God has done all of this through Christ and rescues us from something we could never do. We could never earn the righteousness needed. He rescues us from something we could never get forgiveness over, our sin. He rescues us through Christ and he purchases us so that we are turkeys in his household. And now he's telling us turkeys, please me with the freedom of knowing your sins are covered completely. With the freedom of knowing, you will always be welcome because the righteousness that Christ has provided for you is totally sufficient. So please me. And we forget that not only are we reconciled, but our God is present with us in every moment. And our behavior isn't shaped by his presence. I mean, just to use that a little bit awkward analogy, men not looking at dirty pictures when their wife is present, but they'll do it when Jesus is present. Isn't there a problem there? But we do it with all sorts of other things. We complain about events as though Jesus isn't in control. We talk about politics as though the powers that be are actually the United States government, and not the God who says he's in control. We talk about regulations and schools and responses and referees and grades and employment and paychecks as though the God who governs the universe doesn't govern the universe and isn't present. And then we act like pleasing him is an imposition of duty. This is how I feel a little bit as a dad. I made a rule that our kids had to wake up by a certain time this summer, all summer, except for Saturdays they can sleep in. You would think that I have chopped off two of their fingers the way they've complained and griped. Because it's just like unbelievably hard to believe that anyone should have to wake up at the unbelievable hour I have expected of them. We treat God the same way. As though the expectation that we are faithful to him or that we pull in our anger rather than expressing it or that we forgive the, the people who've hurt us deeply, we, we, we act as though somehow God has, has just burdened us with this deeply imposing regulation. He hasn't. Jesus Christ has already done all the righteousness needed. And God has welcomed you into his home and empowers you to do righteousness. And he's welcomed you as his son, as his child, granted you an inheritance forever. And then he says, your best choice in life, the thing that will bring you the most satisfaction, is what I want too. We just don't believe it will satisfy I mean, I keep telling my kids getting up early is good. They just don't believe me. Some of you clearly don't believe me either when I say getting up is good. But obeying God is good. It's good for you. It brings goodness to the soul. So like the psalmist can say, your word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And we're like, man, David is crazy. But it is, it's good. It's so good. And we act as though God has pressured us and guilted us and forced us. So we wake up, and just for example, though you are all faithful, 
we wake up on Sunday morning, and it's like, oh, it's Sunday again. Are we going to go to church, honey? I don't know. I'm really tired. You know, I think Johnny has a 98.7 fever. We probably should stay home. It's like, well, you know, I got a big day at the office tomorrow. Listen, there is always going to be something Satan gives you to get you out of obedience. Do you want to please God just to please him? Do you love your God who saved you? How much did it cost him to welcome you home and rescue you? So much so that you know he wants your good. He wants your joy to be in him, but he wants your joy. Right? So the discipline of sweetly sitting in the crosswork of Christ and seeing how much it cost him to obey his Father so that he could give you his righteousness and knowing how much it cost him to pay the price of our sin so that he could grant you forgiveness. And knowing how much it cost him to be alienated from his Father so that he could grant you eternal presence with a Father where there is unlimited joy should energize our hearts to think this God whom we serve, our Savior whom we love, is worth living for. I will live full tilt for the joy of my King. And that shouldn't be something that feels deeply expensive. It is. But if you can keep your eye on eternity, you will never regret it. Practice and discipline your soul to live as though God is next to you and only wants your good. Put your heart's compass and calibrate it so it points towards the pleasure of God. And you'll be sweetly satisfied in the life to come. Love your Savior. His cross work is incredible. The purpose for which he died, to grant you his righteousness, to forgive you from your sin, and to redeem you to his Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for Jesus Christ who died for us. Lord, help us to love you. And I ask for any in this room that may not know Jesus Christ in such a way that they've expressed full confidence in him and have pledged their loyalty to him and acknowledge him as king. Lord, if there's anyone in this room like that this morning, I pray that you would turn their heart to love Jesus and believe in what he has done on the cross as the only means of rescue from their sin, that they might be saved. We know that you say, whoever calls upon your name will be saved. And so, Lord, through the Spirit, would you awaken the souls of those in here who don't know Jesus. Bring them to life that they might trust in your Son. Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time and maybe have become accustomed to patterns of Christianity but have lost the joy that should energize our steps, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation, having reflected on the sweetness of the cost of the cross and what it accomplished with that great cost. Father, for those who are still working through an understanding of who you are and exactly what you've done to save us, I ask that the truth and the theology of Matthew would resonate within their soul, that it would sink into their minds and hearts, and in so doing, it would glue them with an unbreakable glue to a vibrant, faith-filled commitment to Christ. Lord, I ask that our church would love you better because of what we've studied this morning in God's word. In Jesus' name, amen.